The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Hello, good evening. Been up to Mark chapter 8. And I have to be honest, guys, this is one of those texts that when you, when you open up as someone, you know, teaching uh, a text, a, a section of scripture, you open up and you read this section and you don't immediately think like, oh, I know where we're going with this or I see right away what God wants to show us. It's just, it's not, this isn't one that you're going to have a flannel graph for in Sunday school. You know, this isn't one that is incredibly commonly referred to or discussed. And yet, in this text and in what we look at today, I just have been, again, blown away and blessed and exhorted by the fact that God speaks in every single verse. And from where I was at a few weeks ago, and when Danny mentioned where he would be, and I started to dig into just every single time, every single time I'm ever like, hmm, interesting, all right, let's dig in this text. I'm not sure exactly where, where we'll spend all of our time. Every single time God's word is, is faithful to just being immense in what he has to say to us and what he has to show us. And there is always more of God. And that's actually one of the points for tonight's talk of what we look at for tonight's message is there's always more. God always has more to pour out, more to display to us. We will never reach the end of God. If we've ever feel like we've started to run dry in finding new revelations, new displays, new depths of God, it's because we've stopped looking. (laughs) It's because our eyes are not uh, pursuing. And so uh, this text, I, I I was encouraged and I was blessed and I'm excited to look at it for the next 30 or 40 minutes with you guys. So we're in Mark chapter 8, verse 11. And let's read our section through verse 21. It says, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And verse 13 says, he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then Jesus charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned amongst themselves, it is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves and the five, for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they answered him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. In verse 21, he finishes here this rebuke by saying, 
How is it you do not understand? Let's pray. God, we want to understand. We want to see. We want to be aware. We want to be open to your heart, your desires. Lord God, that we would reflect on things in a manner that displays us seeing all of what you are showing us. Would we be able to perceive, Lord God, your heart, your passion, your desire, your purposes, your plans, Lord? And would we be able to then rightly remove things that are getting in the way, obstacles? Lord, allow us to be sons and daughters, children of yours who receive all that you have for us. And we pray that over this text and over this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, I want to start with jumping to a random story in the Old Testament. 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman is a man who had leprosy. Uh, During the time of Elijah, Elisha, uh, there was a man named Naaman who was the uh, commander of the Syrian army under a guy by the name of Ammon, and uh, Aram, sorry, under Aram, and uh, he came down with leprosy. After having gone on many conquests, after having been incredibly successful, he, he was dealt this, this big blow of this disease that was uh, a death nail. It was something that would ruin your lives, as we see throughout Scripture. And so Naaman uh, had a servant who apparently cared about his well-being. She was an Israelite who had been somehow taken captive, probably by someone that the Syrians had then captured. And so then she made her way into being one of his servants. And she mentioned to Naaman's wife that she knew of a prophet who could heal him of his leprosy. And so that got back to him, and he was desperate, desperate enough to then immediately go to his king and ask that he would be able to go all the way to Israel and to track down this healing. So he goes and he tracks down this healing. He he first goes to the the king of Israel. The king of Israel is upset because he's like, I can't heal you. Uh, He rips his clothes. He feels like this is going to lead to war between him and Syria because he can't take care of this. But then Elisha hears about it. And he says, send Naaman to me. Send him over here so that, so that they will know, the Syrians will know, Naaman will know that there is a God in Israel. And so Naaman goes to Elisha. And he had come with immense amounts of wealth, thinking he was going to purchase this healing. He came with all sorts of clothes and gold and silver. And, and when he comes to Elisha's house, Elisha doesn't come out and greet him. Elisha doesn't even invite him in. Elisha instead sends out a messenger to tell Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman was furious. He was livid about two main things. One, he was, he was upset about the fact that Elisha didn't even come out. You know, you're an important person. I'm an important person. Shouldn't you give me the honor of your presence, right? And this is how things should be done. But then second, he was upset and offended by the prescription, by the instructions. He was offended by the Jordan River. He says, we have many rivers back where I come from that are far better than this river. He, and essentially, he implies, I won't even, I won't even be you know, dirt and grime. I won't even be clean coming out of this river. 
and you're telling me to go and wash in this river. And he leaves upset. And as he gets a little ways off, his servants come to him and they tell him, you were ready to pay this man immense amounts of wealth. You were ready to go and do a tremendous task if he gave you something incredible to go and accomplish. And yet you are not willing to just go and wash in the river seven times. And so he, he concedes to his servants, which this isn't a story about Naaman, but that's, all of this is very interesting, how he, his heart and how he approaches this. But he goes and he washes and he's cleansed. And what we have here is this story of someone who goes from a certain amount of faith, enough faith to travel and to be willing to at least try to test this God of the Israelites who could heal him, to incredible offense because it was not what he expected it to look like. This was not what he anticipated. This was not how you know, business is done in his mind or how healings are done in his mind to then God healing him. And the reason why we start with a story is because tonight we look at how often we are unwilling to see, how often we are unwilling to receive from God what he has, what he wants to do because of our unbelief. And yet in this story, we see that he ultimately is healed, but he could have gone away with none of it. He could have gone away completely unreceptive to what God wanted to do. And so often for us, we want to ask ourselves is, God, are there healings that you have for me? Are there things that you want to do? Are there depths that you want to move? And I have limited you. I have had a mindset about how you should heal. I've had a mindset about the way these interactions should go. I have through culture, I have through experience, I have through life's courses of action to come to a, a, a mindset of this is how you work. And when you don't work in that way, I write it off where I'm unwilling to move forward. And essentially what we're doing is we're making God two-dimensional. We're, we're smashing him down and we're putting him into a box of this is who you are and this is how you work. And we do it with, because of our own beliefs. We do it because of our own flexibility or rigidity. We do it because, because there's just, this is how I've always thought of it. This is how I've always understood it. But God desires to be able to declare to us who he is. And he desires to reveal to us his heart. And he desires for us to be pliable enough to move and to walk in all that he has. And in that, seeing all of him, learning all of him, experiencing all of him, recognizing that he is incredible and immense. And I just love this story as a starter because Naaman could have so easily and came so close to missing all that God had for him because this is not the river and you didn't give me the opportunity to give you the price. You didn't give me the opportunity to pay for it. This is how I wanted it. This is how I expected it. I'm leaving. But then we see full circle that God heals and that God moves and that he becomes a worshiper of God. And so here in this text, we have people who are unwilling to see God as he is. And then not only do we have people who are unwilling to see God as he is in the Pharisees, but then we have even the disciples who, who are so limited even in their faith that they can't see all of God and what he's doing. And his desire clearly throughout this text, through deep sighs and through frustration and through, through seven rapid questions to the disciples, is that we would open our eyes and that we would be willing to receive what he has for us. 
So let's start up again in verse 11. It says, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. This is not innocent questioning. The language here, as the scholars told me throughout the week and the different commentaries I read, is that, that this was a cornering, this was a belittling, this was a, a prosecuting, this was them coming with a, a, an attack. That they weren't looking for a sign in, hey, we'd love to just see you do another miracle. They were looking for, prove yourself to us because we're not believing, we're skeptical, and we think that you are an imposter. And so they're saying, bring us a sign, not just a miracle, but something that displays you are God, you're Messiah, prove this to us. And Jesus is frustrated. Uh, those of you guys who are parents, you know, I'm a parent right now of nine, 12, and 13-year-old, and these next couple words hit deep for me because it says, he sighed deeply. <laughs> you know, as a parent, it's just like those moments where you're just like, oh. <laughs> you know, like it's kind of the sigh is like I've run out of options. You know, I've got, I've tried everything. I care greatly for you, and yet I don't know where to go from here because it's clearly not working. And so Jesus, he just, he sighs deeply. And he says, why does this generation ask for a sign? And then he tells them, and this is emphatic, he says, truly, there's the emphatic nature, but I tell you, no sign will be given to it, to this generation. And what this is, the phrasing here is it's like an oath. This isn't just that an observer, he says, there will be no sign. You will receive no sign from me. I can promise you that. Then he says that he left them and crossed back over. He, he, he was finished with this conversation. In the parallel text in Matthew, we actually have a, an additional word from Jesus. And he's kind of speaking a little further into their obtuseness. Because it says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 2, he says that Jesus replied, he says, when evening comes, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it'll be stormy, for the sky is overcast. You know how to interpret the appearances of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And he says, a wicked and audacious generation looks for a sign. But None will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And then he left him. So he says, you have the ability to know the weather. You have the ability to decipher. You have the ability to perceive. And yet you've decided to shut off all ability to really observe here. You have closed yourself off. You have been unwilling to recognize what God is doing because you've made him two-dimensional. You have in your mind what the Messiah would look like. You have in your mind what it would look like for God to do a work in your generation. And therefore, you have been unwilling to see all that I have displayed, all that he has done. And so he says, clearly, you have the functional capacity, but you are not, essentially, saying, you're not too dumb. You're not incapable. You're unwilling. And he says, no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah, who went into the well three days and then was, you know, reborn. And what he's saying is no sign will be given to you of the Messiah, of his Messiah nature, 
except for the fact that I will die, I will be buried, and I will be risen again. And that this will be your final sign. This will be how I display myself to you and to all of humanity for all of eternity is through this sign. And so then moving on, and we make our way to really what I believe is the crux of the text. Because Jesus moves on, and now he's going to clearly still be mulling over what just happened. This frustration is still sitting deep with him as him and the disciples head off on a boat journey. And it says the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. And then Jesus, and here's the thing, this is unrelated to the bread, unrelated to the bread, Jesus now has a message for them. We're going to see in a second, the disciples get confused thinking it's related to this bread issue. Jesus, not concerned with the bread issue, okay? So you can get a little stumbled up in this because you can kind of read it and think like, is he concerned with the bread issue? He's not concerned with the bread issue. Mark is making us aware of the fact that the disciples are concerned with the bread issue and that's why they misinterpret Jesus' statement here. But so we have established they only have one loaf of bread, which is comical because he just multiplied bread and fish for 4,000 people. But they have one loaf of bread, and then Jesus, because it, this, this unwillingness to listen, this unbelief is still weighing upon him, he says to his disciples, he says, be careful, Jesus warned them, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Watch out for the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And so here they're going to stumble. Jesus gave them a spiritual warning, which they misinterpreted because of their material mindset. He gives them a spiritual warning, and they thought it was like a very practical slap on the wrist for not having enough bread. <laughs> and, and yet he's dealing with something incredibly deep. And so he tells them of this leaven. Uh, and throughout scripture, we have leaven as a sign of, of the small starting initiation of, of our human heart's tendency towards sin. That it's this like, this this cultivator of sin within our hearts, that it's the beginning, it's the seed, it's where, it's where our, our paths go awry, okay? So leaven, we know, uh, we, we call it yeast, we call it leaven. Uh, nowadays, the popular thing is a sourdough starter, and this is what they're referring to. For them, they would, uh, they would make a loaf of bread, but before they make the bread, and when they make the loaf, when it's just, loaf, when it's just dough, um, they would pull some out. Uh, every time they made it, and they would keep it until the next time they made a loaf, because that the fermentation that would take place in that, the chemical response, that would become their leaven. That would be the thing that made their next loaf rise, right? For us, most of us, if we bake, we go and get some active dry yeast, we get something else. Some of us, if we're really into sourdough, we've got a starter, and we're taking very good care of it. Uh, I like to joke that the sourdough starter, this this is going to be a joke that maybe like 10% of you appreciate. Sorry to everyone else. I like to joke that the sourdough starter is like a Tamagotchi pet for hipster young women. See, 5% loved it. The rest of you are like, I don't know. But it's this Tamagotchi pet was this thing that girls wore when I was in like middle school or elementary school on their waist. And it was this little game where you had to like keep your little Tamagotchi pet alive and you had to feed it and take care of it, and it would cry if you didn't f care for it. That's kind of like a sourdough starter. 
You gotta just really baby this thing and keep it alive and add to it. Okay, so this is what they had, but the problem for them was they didn't have refrigeration, they didn't have all the same stuff that we have, and if their leaven went bad, it would poison their next loaf. And not only would it poison their next loaf, but then typically with the next loaf, you pull out a bit again and you save it for the next loaf. But if it went bad, it would then poison the next one. If you pulled out some again, it'd poison the next one and and it it would go on and on and on. And so the idea of leaven was that this little fermenting beginning thing would would spread. So Jesus uses throughout scripture this idea of leaven as something that is the initiating source of our larger sin problems. And so in another section of scripture, he, he directly refers to the leaven of just the Pharisees and says that it's the leaven of hypocrisy. And he flat out, he just directly says it's the leaven of hypocrisy, meaning they, they're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they go around like everything's good and right, and on the inside, they're dead. Uh, but here, I believe it's a leaven of a different kind, that he, he points to their inability to hear, their inability to receive, their inability to accept. And in this, I, we see it as the leaven of unbelief. That this, these seedlings of unbelief that exist in them, and he says also of Herod, unwillingness to receive Jesus for who he is, that they spread into everything. They make it to where they are unable to accept God as he is. They're unable to follow after God. They're unable to walk in any of what he calls them to because of this leaven of unbelief. And for Jesus, he's concerned for the Pharisees and he's concerned for all of us. The elements of unbelief that persist within us that are just this hidden little thing in our, in our leaven, in our starting little dough, that it will spread to all of our life and make us incapable of receiving all that God has for us. Because the true factor in all of our lives as Christians is that God wants to do incredible things with us. He wants to transform us. He wants to cultivate us. He wants to broaden our horizons. He wants to give us all sorts of purpose and direction and filling and, and display himself to us. But so often, uh, we're like uh, children who are just content with our understanding of the world and just not looking to expand. And this is how I understand it, and this is where I want it to stay. And for the disciples, they were... They were so limited even in this moment by the practical, because again, even in this, even though the purpose wasn't their bread, they were limited by the practical because of their unbelief. Their, their, Jesus multiplied food for 5,000, he multiplied food for 4,000, he turned water to wine, and they're still concerned about the loaf of bread. So clearly, even in this bread incident, they're limited from being able to hear what he's actually trying to say because they're focused on their one loaf of bread as opposed to just knowing he is the giver of bread. He's the one who gave manna. He's the one who gave to the 5,000, to the 4,000. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's the same on this boat. And so they're limited in their ability to receive from him because they're focused on their physical. And so often for us, the results of our unbelief, they play out in very normal ways that we might not trace back to that leaven because you don't always know the source. But our, our fears can be 
so often traced back to our lack of confidence, our lack of faith, or our unbelief. Our, our worry can be traced back to that. Our confusion about who God is and how he's working can be traced back to that. Our questioning of God's place in our life and if he cares about us can be traced back to our, our unbelief. And you see it throughout the Gospels, and it's what Jesus is dealing with, and it's a fascinating thing because he continues to deal with it. You know, As Daniel will look at next week with the, the healing where there was two two steps to it, the, the guy had partial sight and then full sight, or then even later after that, he'll ask Peter, who do you say that I am? And he cares about how they view everything of what he's doing, how they understand it. And so in scripture, we see the disciples, uh, they, they ask God in the storm, if you really cared, that's unbelief, a lack of confidence in the fact that he does care and he is moving. They, they were concerned about their physical needs. They were concerned about uh, the purpose of their lives and how he was moving. They, they were concerned about uh, enough to take things into their own hands at times. They, they were concerned in a way they tried to correct Jesus. They tried to tell, push him towards other methods and towards tell him who he should love and tell him who he shouldn't use. And all of this was an element of their unbelief, their unwillingness to allow God to present himself to us as he is and to allow him to be broad, allow him to color it in in all the colors and display himself in three dimension, that he is, in their time, the savior who came to die, to be the lamb, to, to bring the Gentiles in, to, to reach out to the Jews who seem like they have it all right and bring them to repentance. These were the things for them, but for us, there's, there's more. We have things that we limit from the church perspective that we've grown up with, from the families that we've grown up, from the culture that we have. We limit God. From our personalities, absolutely, we limit him. And he wants us to be able to have a broad perspective, an open heart to how he would display himself to us and how he would move. And so Jesus, in verse 16, he, he responds to the disciples. It says, they discussed with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. And aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them. Again, it's not about the bread. He asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And the 12, uh, they, re they respond, 12 is the answer. Uh, verse 20, and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? They answered, seven. So then he said to them, do you still not understand? Their response was bread. That he tells them to watch out for the leaven of unbelief, for the leaven of Pharisees and Herod, and they turn to the practical. And so he questions them. This thing that they're worried about is not the issue. The thing that they should be worried about is how he wants to move in and through them and how they can perceive and understand his work as the Messiah. And their, their major issue is their willingness to receive. There's three parts to us really being able to have God transform us and do a work in our hearts. The first one is listening. 
you know, that we are able to take in intellectually the concept that God is saying. And even in that, there's a challenge, and they weren't even able to listen in this moment because they were funneling his words through their filters. And that's oftentimes what our two-dimensional understandings of God does, is we can't even hear the words he's saying because, because we're, we're filtering it and we're, we're removing some of it or we're skewing it based off of our heart posture. But so the first thing we need to do is we just need to say, God, let me be able to listen. But in Naaman's instance, he heard what the instructions were and he struggled with the second part. And that is he, he had a hard part time receiving it. He instead was offended by it. And for many of us, that's also where we get stumbled, is we can't receive what God is showing us. Because it's one thing to listen, to hear. It's another thing to come, into, uh, come in line with, to take on the opinion and the thought and the, what's been communicated to us. And so it wasn't until Naaman went and stepped into the water that he received the instruction. He had heard it, he had listened, which is more than what the disciples were able to do. They were completely off on even hearing what Jesus was saying. But then he, he struggled receiving. And then when he received it, he went into the water. And then once we receive is when we can be transformed. And we know from scripture what God wants to do in our hearts and our lives is he wants to bring a transforming work to us. He wants to bring uh, something where he he reworks, he uproots, he removes that fleshly heart, that fleshly mind that, that skews everything through our selfishness, through our pride, through our conceit, through our insecurities, through our fears. And he wants to transform that. But we have to be able to listen and then we have to be willing to receive. And then the transformation comes. And the beautiful thing is that once the transformation comes, we have hearts that are able to receive more freely. We're able to look at things as the way God looks at things. And, and we still struggle, we still go back and forth, we still look at people all around us as impediments and as difficulties when he's trying to transform us to looking at them as the harvest who he loves. We still do struggle, but, but his desire is to transform our whole way of looking at things to where there will be no more hardness. He says, I want to give you a heart of flesh for a heart of stone, that he wants to do a work within us to be able to hear, receive, and be transformed. And so, as we apply this, what we want to practice is an avoidance of unbelief. We want to practice avoiding a heart posture of unbelief that we so easily tend towards. And so the first thing that we want to avoid is a heart posture of blindness, a part of us that doesn't allow us to look and see the clear work that God is doing, an unwillingness to perceive, an unwillingness to look. I don't know about you guys, I have my kids where at times I can't even get them to like look me in the eyes, you know, we're dealing with some issue and they're just like, no, no. It's like, look at what's happened, you know, or, or I shouldn't transition from my kids to my dog, but you know, like your dog won't look at where they know they've messed up, you know? And so for many of us, we're just unwilling or 
we're unwilling to drop the scales and to, with an open heart, perceive. And for me, I know so often, whether it's in the difficult circumstances I get into in you know, work interactions or within my marriage, one of the first things I have to pray is, God, remove the lens I've put on this. Remove the impediment that I have placed. Allow me to see where my heart is wrong and even being able to perceive what is going on. And so we want to avoid a heart posture of blindness by looking for God in all of our lives, in every part of our life, realizing that he's in every single layer, he's in every part of our our daily lives, and he's working in all of it. That he's in both the miraculous and he's in the mundane. He used the mundane things even in the miracle that we're coming out of. He multiplied fish and loaves, right? Now I'm a foodie. And I've thought many times when reading the multiplication, like, why didn't he multiply something gourmet? Why didn't he take, like, the best, right? If you're going to multiply, let's multiply something fantastic, right? Uh, I'd be pretty bummed if someone's like, I can multiply food, and they come over, and they're, like, multiplying, like, my Triscuits. I'm like, no, 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 don't multiply my Triscuits. Multiply, you know, these croissants, you know, or something, like, multiply something better, you know? And, and he multiplied fish and, and loaves, but... But he wanted to work in the ordinary. And he takes the ordinary, and oftentimes that's where he speaks to them. He speaks to them in these normal interactions. He speaks to them after coming out of the storm. He speaks to them about the woman at the well, where this was a mundane interaction that for us is huge because we've looked at it for generations at how God moved. But it was mundane, and that's where God works and he moves. And so we say, God, give me eyes to see you in all of my life and how you're working and moving and in that you're in these interactions, you're in these relationships, you're in these calls and you're working and moving. The second thing we want to avoid is a heart posture of deafness. I'm too often deaf to God's voice. God is quiet and I'm running with headphones in, you know, I'm moving quick and he wants to speak. And I have news, I have entertainment, I have busyness. And so we want to avoid a heart posture of deafness by learning the art of silence and solitude. By slowing down enough for God to speak to us. By slowing down enough for him to be able to have an opportunity to get two words in. You know? By him giving the opportunity to, to tell us what he's really thinking. I don't know about you, but like if my wife and I, if we're really busy, we're actually in a really busy couple weeks right now, it, it, you know, she can share something with me that's been on her heart for five days. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me five days ago? Like, I don't want you to live without telling me, you know? And she's like, when? When would I have told you? You know, like, it's like, I, we need to slow down for him to say, you're being blind. You're not listening. I'm trying to show you something in this interaction. I'm trying to show you something in how I want to move in your life or in your family. Think about it like this, if you were at a party and it was really loud and there's a bunch of music and you know, everyone's talking and there's a lot of bustle and hustle uh, and, and you see someone that you really want to connect with, you're not going to do your best at connecting with them while it's loud and while mid-conversation people are interrupting and you're trying to yell and talk and repeat and what'd you say, what are you going to do? You're going to step outside. You're going to take a moment to, to quiet all the noise and connect and listen. And this is what God wants to do with us. He wants to connect. He wants to speak. And he wants to speak through these things to break down our unbelief and to penetrate. 
then we want to avoid a heart posture of forgetting. For the disciples, they had forgotten the 4,000, the 5,000, and everything else that Christ has done. We see it throughout the Bible. We see the Israelites forgetting, forgetting, forgetting. And so God gave them these instructions of Ebenezer stones, set up stones of remembrance when he brought them out of the wilderness, when they crossed the Jordan. Set up these things to where you remember what I have done. You remember my past faithfulness. You remember when you have unbelief. Remember the other times where you doubted. Remember the other times where you weren't certain about what I was doing. And remember how I ended up healing you in the Jordan. Remember how I ended up taking care of every one of your concerns and something beautiful flourished from that. Remember that I have shown myself true. And even in scriptures, I was telling someone, as, as I told you guys at the beginning with this text, every time I'm like, oh, this seems like a hard text to teach on. Every single time I'm like, God, your word is so incredibly beautiful and it's so much deeper than I can possibly imagine. And so he will always move and we need to remember how he has moved. And then we want to avoid a heart posture of doubting. Now, doubt is not questioning, but it is kind of that posture that the Pharisees had of interrogating skepticism. Instead, we want to come to God. We want to avoid this hard posture by coming to God in humility and asking. He welcomes our questions. In the Proverbs, he gives commands about how they are to care for people and be gentle and gracious towards people who ask questions because God receives our questions. He wants our questions. And so we avoid a heart posture of doubting by coming to God by asking him the hard questions, by God, I am struggling with this or that. I'm struggling with, if this is what you're calling me to, then how can I forgive them? If this is where you're leading me, then how can I give this up? If this is what you want to happen in this area of my life, then why does this hurt so bad? And allow him to answer these questions. Allow him to speak to each of these areas of need. And then the last one, is we want to avoid a heart posture of entitlement that says, I deserve better. That says, you have to meet my needs, God. You have to bend. You have to come into line with what we have decided is right and wrong. What we have decided is how you're supposed to do things. That you should come out and meet me and receive my payment so that I feel like I have earned this healing, right? That you need to do it this way or that way, that we have this sense of, of entitlement of, of how God should do things. And we need to avoid this heart posture by pursuing gratitude and recognizing his goodness and his holiness and his power and his authority Part of what we do in our singing is reminding ourselves of who he is so that then when we get to those moments of unbelief, we're reminded that he is faithful, that he is true, that he is an overcomer, that he makes us overcome, that he works and moves and is powerful. And in all of this, he expands our perspective and our understanding of who he is and how glorious he is. We limit him and we dwindle him down when we make it our tradition, when we make it our comfort level, when we make it our something that's held back by, by this, is, this is how far I go, or this is what I'm willing to consider. 
But what he wants to show us is his immensity. He tells us he wants to show us the heights, the widths, the depths of his love. That he wants to spend all of eternity displaying his glorious riches to us. And that he doesn't want us just to settle, just to stop, just to cease in our progression of receiving and comprehending and seeing all that he is. Ending with this. Uh, in the second book written in the Narnia series, Prince Caspian, uh, the Pevensey children are back in Narnia, and there's this whole experience where Lucy, the first one through the wardrobe in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, again, she's the first one who's able to kind of recognize that Aslan's there. And her siblings don't think he's there, they think she's making it up, which is a good example of remembering what God has done in the past. They, weren't, they didn't remember. And... Uh, and so Lucy ends up seeing Aslan and walking with Aslan, and they're having this little conversation. And one of the things that she says, points out to Aslan is, is she says, you've gotten bigger than you were last time I was here, before we went back to our world and back here. You've gotten bigger than you used to be. And he, he corrects her. He says, I haven't gotten any bigger. He says, it's actually the opposite, that you have grown in your ability to see and to comprehend. And in fact, I'm actually even bigger than you can possibly imagine or ever even fully know. But as you do grow, you will see me as bigger. You will recognize me as bigger. Your estimation, your understanding of how big I am will grow. And so it will perceive like I'm bigger. But the truth is, you will never know how big I am. I, and I have always been that big. And you have only been unable to see all that I am. And that is who God is. He is bigger. He's more gracious. He has more for us. He has greater love. He moves in ways that we can't imagine. And he invites us just to go further and further and further in, to listen, to receive, to be transformed, and to display himself to us in his immensity. And that's what we desire. That's what we want. We want all of what he has for us. Let's pray. God, we pray, I pray for us, that we would be unhindered before you. That we wouldn't insist on any limitations, that we wouldn't even subconsciously place obstacles before you to our heart, to our minds. But that we would come to you in full faith, in full confidence, ready to allow you to move and work in any and every way imaginable. Lord God, that our heart posture would be open to all that you would want to do and work. God, you, you've made it clear that if we will make room, you will fill it. If we will remove boundaries, you will go beyond anything that we could possibly have imagined. God, give us hearts and minds that are vast in our willingness to receive you. Give us, Lord God, adventurous hearts that say, 
what else, Lord? How much more do you have for me? How much more is there that I can see? Because we want to see it all. We want all of you, Lord. Fill up this place. Fill up our hearts. Fill up all of our anticipation. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.